Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Jamie Sandberg, also known as Ken's Mom. (laughs) Welcome back to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I have a few of them right over there. You do. You do. I do, I do. Um, I don't think we're going to be reading one of them literally off the shelf today. Uh, Although, I don't know. I haven't looked that closely at your book collection. We could try. Well, I'm open if you are. (laughs) Uh, And we don't try that hard, really, to read the books. Mostly we just sort of read short stories out of the books and fuck around a lot. (laughs) I did find an ad a few weeks ago that uh, showed up on my uh, social media feed where you can buy books by the foot. Book by the foot? Books by the foot that look really good on your shelves. And there's no expectation whatsoever that you're actually going to read them. You can order them based on size, based on color. So if you want all gray books or all red books or all yellow books, you can do that. Or you can do multicolored books. I feel like this is something that uh, a fair number of our listeners could maybe use. Like... I don't actually want to read. I've got the podcast to read for me, but I feel like I'm well read. I should have nice looking books. Mm. I think that's for people who have too little class and too much money and that the money would be better spent on art. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, If you're thinking about sending that kind of money to Amazon to buy fake books. Instead, you can go to campfireclassics.com. Actually, I think it's campfireclassicspodcast.com. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I tried to go to our website. You can go to our website and uh, buy us a cup of coffee. Just click the little link that says buy a cup of coffee and you can decide how much coffee you want to buy us. It's like five bucks or something like that. Or find the website figure out how much it would cost to buy a foot of books and send you that money instead. Yeah. Or if you're really bored, uh, reach out to us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com and ask for a mailing address. We'll give you this mailing address and you can just send us books by the foot. There you go. Actually, speaking of emails, I uh, recently, and when I say recently, I mean three hours ago, um, wrested control of our email address back from Heather. We occasionally, when we're not in the same place, um, take turns swapping out the password. So one of us is able to check email and Twitter, and then the other one is. And then, well, it was Heather's job for a while, but since she's back on the cruise ship, um, she hasn't been doing her job very much. (laughs) Under the bus you go. Um, So... I recently wrested control of our email address and we had a few emails and I want to read them and respond to them uh, now. 
perfect. So first from our uh, buddy over at the Tattoo Squid podcast, which I was a guest on a while back. So listeners, check it out if you haven't yet. Uh, In reference to the episode blurb from the episode Look After Your Ass, which I believe, Mom, was the last time you were on the show. I think you are right. So uh, in, in, in response to the blurb, he said, I believe death of the universe is not true. I could be wrong. It could be the obvious. That's because in the blurb, what I wrote was, in this episode, we discuss uh, monkey syphilis, a talking rose bush, and the heat death of the universe. And, um, well, yeah, you're right. We we did talk about monkey syphilis and a talking rose bush, but we did not discuss the heat death of the universe. No, you made that, in that up. that episode. You made yeah. that up. Um, next, from possibly our number one fan, Lindsay, uh, in response to our episode Spoonful of Sugar, in which Heather decided to terrorize me with a bunch of crap from uh, Haunted. Haunted Doll yes, stuff. Yes, yes. Yeah. So her email. Hi, Heather and Ken. I just wanted to send you a picture of my not necessarily haunted, but definitely weird object. I was babysat from two until 13 by a wonderful woman who was like a second mom to me. She had a massive doll collection and most were very nice, like replicas of Princess Diana in her wedding dress or porcelain dolls in Victorian dress. Then there was Freddie. Freddie was in a corner of her living room where I would take my nap every day and he would stare at me the period, entire period, time, period. After a couple of years, I finally told her how afraid I was and she very kindly put him in the closet. When she moved out of her house, she gave me Freddie, thinking it was so funny and also I'm 40 and should be over such superstitions. I am not. Not. (laughs) He's as scary as ever. And now I see how very racist his depiction is, too, which is just the cherry on top. She died last year, so obviously I can't get rid of him now because what if she's watching? Also, Amy Sedaris was told by a medium that spirits can be in anything used, like furniture or clothing from thrift stores, and I just can't risk it. Anyway, thank you for making me laugh every week. Lindsay. And here is a picture of Freddie, which I will be posting. Oh, my goodness. On oh, no, the Campfire no, Classic no, social no. media in the next day or two. Um, Freddie has lace. Just so that our listeners oh, can dear. appreciate the fabulousness <laughs> of Freddie. <laughs> um, so there's that. Uh, and then finally, from uh, Kenrick referencing our haunted instrument episode he merely said thanks for the episode and then shared a link to a song called the guitar by guy clark which i listened to right before we started recording it's actually a pretty great song and i'm going to include a link of it uh link to it um in the the episode blurb for this week great um so yeah i just wanted to do some some house cleaning and and catching up on that because uh i'm sorry to our listeners who have been messaging us and not getting responses i'm on top of it now (laughs) and and they don't have your personal cell phone number so they can't text you their feedback like i do and that is not going to change (laughs) (laughs) um 
Yeah, so I feel better about that. Uh, so if you have anything you'd like to share, um, especially haunted stuff, because I just think that's great. Um, I'll again, I'll I'll have probably not by the time this episode drops, but by like Thursday, I'll have posted some pictures of Freddie. And if you have a haunted doll or other haunted object that you think is creepier than Freddie, please, please send it our way. I really want to do a, a, a comparison of our listeners' spookiest stuff. All right. I'll, I'll take a look around. Great. Great. And the competition has already begun. But haunted stuff is not what we do on this podcast. It is not. Or at least not. Well, sometimes there are haunted stories. There's, I, we do a lot of haunted stuff on this podcast. There are actually a shocking number of ghost stories, but it's not the primary thing we do here. The primary thing we do here is uh, read stories, read short stories that are in public domain. Um, because we're reading stories in public domain, that means most of the time we're reading stories that are over 100 years old, which means the way the writers wrote them is wrong by today's standards and so we make fun of the weird antiquated writing and the i used to always say accidental penis jokes but a, a few weeks back craig pointed out that some of them weren't accidental yeah, some they of were them very are much on purpose then and they're just as on purpose now but we're particularly partial to those that were not intended that way yesteryear and now they just are indeed especially those where folks are self-gratifying in public yeah nothing like a good self-gratifying ejaculation um but we cold read these stories for you every week sight unseen so you get to hear us stumble over words make weird mistakes and um occasionally learn something along the way and this week uh mom has a story for me to read but before we get to the reading she's going to share some fun facts some researchy stuff that she has done uh because that's how we claim to be more than just an absolute trash comedy podcast i have an author selected for you and i really wanted to be topical because today we are burying the queen and there are hundreds of dignitaries that are gathered on this occasion including president biden macron and many heads of states absent from this gathering is putin Oh, for obvious reasons. Sure. Because he's too important. Right. That's the obvious reason. Yeah. We'll yeah. go with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Too right. self-important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted a segue for that topic. So this is my excuse. My, I'm getting there because I have chosen a Russian author, one okay. that you and Heather have, have talked about a few times on this podcast but I don't think you have done fun facts about him before. And this is Anton Chekhov. I believe you are correct. Okay. Um, I would have to do a deep dive into our back catalog, but I know we've referenced Chekhov's gun several times um, because it's funny to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think we've talked about him. So I most of these uh, facts come to us direct from Wikipedia. A great source. Where would this podcast be without Wikipedia? Anton Pavlovich Chekhov was born January 29th, 
1860. That's a few years before the American Civil War broke out. Yeah. Just to give it a place in history. And he died 44 years later on July 15th, 1904. I didn't know he was that young. He was young. Prolific, hardworking, but quite young when he died. He was the third of six surviving children. His parents had other children, but only six lived. We've run across that term surviving children a few times recently, and I find myself going, no, he's not. He's dead. (laughs) I think there was a long time in history where until a child had lived to about the age of three, you didn't want to get too attached. Sure. Now, Anton Chekhov was born in Russia. And a lot of the backstory has a lot of Russian names, Russian villages. Oh, good. Uh, names with 16 syllables. Sure. So when I come across those, I'm going to read them really quickly mm-hmm. and pretend that I'm hitting all the consonants and, and all the vowels. But there are other things like the village he was born in. I'm not even going to try. Great. Um, so he was born into a small Russian village uh-huh. and his mother and father ran the little grocery store in the village. His father was also director of the parish choir. He was on surface a very devout Russian Orthodox Christian man. Um, but he was a physically and mentally abusive family man, husband and father. His name was Pavel. Yegorovich Chekhov, and he may have been the inspiration for many of Chekhov's portrayals of hypocrisy, tyrannical husbands, and liars. Sure, write what you know. For example, Pavel would throw a tantrum over dinner because there was too much salt in the soup, and then in front of the six children, uh, tell his wife what a fool she was. Chekhov's mother was a great storyteller, and she entertained her children telling stories of her own father, who was a cloth merchant and traveled all over Russia and took her and his family with him. And she had a great relationship and wonderful memories, and those stories were very entertaining to her children. Chekhov once said of his family, "We, uh, our talents we got from our father, but our soul from our mother. Anton Chekhov received a good education, but recalls his childhood as being basically full of suffering. He was held back at the age of 15 because he failed an exam in ancient Greek. Failed one test. That's it. Held back. The Russian schools are rough. A year later, when he was 16 years old, his father was forced into bankruptcy. He overextended himself financially, building a new fancy house uh, to hear his father tell him, er, tell the story. There was a corrupt um, contractor that was responsible for uh, the money go missing. But the family had to flee to Moscow, where they moved in with his two older brothers who were at university. They took his three younger siblings and they left the then 16-year-old Anton to sell the family possessions and, and deal with the shame in the village. 
Now, there is a man who paid off the family's debts in exchange for the family house. And he allowed Chekhov to continue to live in the house while he finished his education. Oh, well, that's that's cool, at least. Yeah. So he um, he continued to live in this town of Tangerog for three more years, staying with the man who bailed out the family. Um, this was uh, the backstory for the cherry orchard you may recognize. Uh, and he did private tutoring. He caught and sold goldfinches. He sold short writings to newspapers and magazines and did other odd jobs. And he sent every spare ruble to his family in Moscow. At the age of 19, he had completing his, completed his schooling and he was accepted into medical school. What were you doing at the age of 19? Probably getting stoned and playing Grand Theft Auto. There you go. <laughs> if we're being super real. <laughs> I thought as much. I, Grand Theft Auto surprises me, but not that it would be a video game. Um, so we actually had a great way of playing Grand Theft Auto um, back in the in my early years in New York. It would be me and Doug and Billy. And um, one of us would be playing the game. One of us would be... Um, playing chords on my guitar and the third one would be doing would be singing narration to what the person playing the video game was doing so it was actually an exercise in improvisation yes yeah yeah it was it was um improvisational songwriting which is what we were actually doing part and it parcel was, with your theater education it was definitely yeah we were definitely doing theater training and not just wasting time <laughs> Back to Chekhov. Back to Chekhov. At the ripe old age of 19, he's now completed his education and been accepted to med school in Moscow. So he rejoins his family and he begins writing sketches and stories for all kinds of publications in order to earn money. And he does this sometimes under a pseudonym. Uh, He's also going to classes, excelling at med school, and with his earnings, he not only pays the tuition for school, but supports his entire family in Moscow. He has various love affairs. One of his love affairs was actually with the wife of one of his teachers. Whoops. And it takes him almost five years, but by his 24th birthday, he is a um, physician. He has completed his training. Um, he goes on to build an extensive medical practice, but he doesn't make much money as a doctor because he chooses to treat mostly poor people and he doesn't charge them anything. By the time he's 25, Chekhov starts coughing up blood. He doesn't admit to his family or to his uh, fellow physicians that he has tuberculosis because he doesn't want to submit to their treatments. He doesn't want to go to the equivalent of a TB asylum. He wants to continue to live his life. And as a physician, he knows the best treatments that are available. And eventually he will succumb to tuberculosis, which explains his death at an early age. Yeah, although it means he was going for like 20 years. Indeed. Wow. So he continues writing for newspapers, magazines, other publications. 
He gains popularity and literary acclaim, winning the Pushkin Prize, which was a top literary prize in Russia at the age of 28. He starts to spend increasing sums of money on drugs in order to provide medical treatment to poor people. Um, His work as a doctor serves to enhance his writing. At the age of 34, he starts working on this full-length play, The Seagull, and it takes him two years, and finally the play has been finished, the rights, the rewrites, and a production is opening. Uh, During rehearsals, people have been um, moved to tears at Nina. They've been very engaged. Opening night happens, and it becomes one of the most famous failures in all of theater history. The audience boos aggressively, repeatedly, loudly. The actress who is playing Nina, Vera, oh, this is so many syllables, Vera Komisarshevskaya. Sure. uh, Was well known all over Russia was uh, somebody that people flocked to see performances she was in. She was so terrified by the audience that she lost her voice. Chekhov, for the final two acts, hid behind the scenes and in the dressing rooms. And when the play was over, he swore that he would never write another play. The problem was that the audience was used to melodramas. And instead, they have this ensemble, character-driven show where all of the good action, like the attempted suicides, takes place offstage somewhere. You don't even get to see it. And the audience was not prepared for that. Fortunately, somebody else was. And that somebody was Konstantin Stanislavski. He was a fan. And he reached out and he got permission to direct the seagull at the Moscow Art Theater in 1898. And it was a success. The critics loved it. Unfortunately, Stanislavski directed it in such a way that it, it, it was a tragedy. He didn't understand any of the humor in it. Yeah. Uh, It was called one of the greatest events in the history of Russian theater and one of the greatest new developments in the history of world drama. And uh, And Chekhov hated it. And Chekhov is going, (laughs) you don't get me at all, do you, dude? Yeah, that's that they they actually famously sort of they, they were a famous collaboration that fundamentally disagreed about everything, 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 everything. Yeah. But the theater, the Moscow Art Theater went on to produce Chekhov's other full-length plays, Uncle Vanya, Three Sisters, The Cherry Orchard, Orchard. right? So he goes on to, he he writes these full-length plays. He writes some other plays that are not um, as long or as well-known. they're way funnier. But they are much, much funnier. Oh, my God. And more more theaters should produce them. Yeah. Yeah. And and his full-length plays to this day get directed by people who don't understand it's a comedy. Yeah. Tonight, you will not be reading a play. Good. I don't have a cast. You will be reading one of Anton Chekhov's short stories. He wrote it when he was 28. Okay. So he'd been a physician for four years. 
It is. It was first published in 1887, and it is entitled From the Diary of a Violent-Tempered Man. Let's start this fire. All right. From the Diary of a Violent-Tempered Man by Anton something that starts with a P, Chekhov. (laughs) You're not even trying. I don't have it there. It actually just says A.P. Chekhov. I just know that it's Anton, and I don't remember what his middle name is. Pavlovian or something like that. (laughs) I am a serious person, and my mind is of a philosophic bent. My vocation is the study of finance. I am a student of financial law, and I have chosen as the subject of my dissertation the past and future of the dog license. So you're an exciting man. You are really exciting. Um, So Heather's new track in Footloose. She's playing a character she hasn't played before. And she opens what would be act two if they actually did did it in two acts, but it's a shortened version. Um, it's it's the big town meeting where they're discussing, oh, are we going to have the dance? Are we not going to have the dance? Oh, the kids are going to fight for the dance, blah, 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 whatever. Um, maybe it's not the opening. Whatever. doesn't matter. It opens the scene by she's out finishing up old business. And her, her big line that gets huge laughs every night is something to the effect of, and so it was agreed... That a dog license would go from $3.50 per dog to $4.25 per dog because a licensed pet is a happy pet. (laughs) And it's adorable and she's just so excited about the... We're going to take care of our dogs. Well, I think you should channel your inner Heather (laughs) and make this adorable. I need hardly point out that young ladies, songs, moonlight, and all that sort of silliness are entirely out of my line. Morning. I can't do it like this. That's going to be annoying. (laughs) Morning. 10 o'clock. My mama pours me out a cup of coffee. I drink it and go out on the little balcony to set to work on my dissertation. I take a clean sheet of paper, dip the pen into the ink, and write out the title. The Past and Future of the Dog License. After thinking a little, I write. Historical Survey. We may deduce from some allusions in Herodotus and Xenophon that the origin of the tax on dogs goes back to... But at that point, I hear footsteps that strike me as highly suspicious. I look down from the balcony and I see below... Oh, they're going to be a woman's footsteps. A young lady with a long face and a long waist. Her name, I believe, is Nadenka or Varenka. It really does not matter which. She is looking for something, pretends not to have noticed me, and is humming to herself. Dost thou remember that song full of tenderness? I read through what I have written and want to continue, but the young lady pretends to have just caught sight of me and says in a mournful voice, Good morning, Nikolai Andrich. 
Only fancy what a misfortune I have had. I went for a walk yesterday and lost the little ball off my bracelet. <laughs> I read through once more the opening of my dissertation. I trim up the tail of the letter G and mean to go on, but the young lady persists. Nikolai Andrich, she says, won't you see me home? The Carolins have such a huge dog that I simply daren't pass it alone. <laughs> oh, and he's going to get all moody and she's just trying to flirt with him. Dude. Well, he is very boring. Boorish. Can you imagine doing a dissertation on the history of dog licenses? I have trouble putting in the energy to research the fun facts that I do for this podcast. So I think he should be grateful that she has come along in search of the bobble that has fallen off of her bracelet. Yeah. I don't think I hope he walks her home. I don't I don't think the balls off her bracelet are the ball she's looking for. <laughs> you could be right. <laughs> there is no getting out of it. I lay down my pen and go down to her. Nadenka or Varenka or whatever her name is takes my arm and we set off in the direction of her villa. When the duty of walking arm in arm with a lady falls to my lot for some reason or other, I always feel like a peg with a heavy cloak hanging on it. Nadenka or Varenka, between ourselves, of an ardent temperament, her father was an Armenian, has a peculiar art of throwing her whole weight on one's arm and clinging to one's side like a leech. And so we walk along. As we pass the Carolins, I see a huge dog who reminds me of the dog license. I think with despair of the work I have begun and sigh. <laughs> what are you sighing for? Asks Nadenka or Varenka. And he, that's not going to get old, is it? No. All right. Well, <laughs> it, it is Russian, so everybody should have at least two names. Yeah. What are you sighing for? asks Nadenka or Varenka and heaves a sigh herself. Here I must digress for a moment to explain that Nadenka or Varenka, now I come to think of it, I believe I have heard her called Mashenka, imagines... <laughs> I, I said can't. at least two names. <laughs> this is why I never made it through War and Peace. Yeah, right. And, well, and that's got like 500 characters in it. Mm-hmm. I hear the musical's really good. <laughs> but we digress. Where was I? Ah, yes. Now that I come to think of it, I believe I've heard her called Mashenka. Imagines, I can't guess why, that I am in love with her and therefore thinks it is her duty as a humane person always to look at me with compassion and to soothe my wounds with words. Listen, she said, stopping. I know why you are sighing. You are in love, yes, but I beg you for the sake of our friendship to believe that the girl you love has the deepest respect for you. She cannot return your love, but is it her fault that her heart has long been another's? 
Mashenka's nose begins to swell and turn red. Her eyes fill with tears. She evidently expects some answer from me, but fortunately at this moment we arrive. Mashenka's mama, a good-natured woman but full of conventional ideas, is sitting on the terrace glancing at her daughter's agitated face. She looks intently at me and sighs, as though saying to herself, Ah, these young people, they don't even know how to keep their secrets to themselves. On the terrace with her are several young ladies of various colors and a retired officer who is staying in the villa next to ours. He was wounded during the last war in the left temple and the right hip. This unfortunate man is, like myself, proposing to devote the summer to literary work. He is writing The Memoirs of a Military Man. Like me, he begins his honorable labors every morning, but before he has written more than I was born in, some Varenka or Mashenka is sure to appear under his balcony, and the wounded hero is borne off under guard. Life is so hard for all of these intellectual literary types who have pretty women trying to drag them away from their work all the time. Well, I wonder how often our author was dragged away from his writing and making the rounds of all the poor people to treat their medical needs by the uh, machinations of some woman. Well, it sounds like he wasn't too opposed to it since he had what sounds like a lengthy affair with his professor's wife. I'm not sure how long it was. I mean... And he was he was very much in his youth at the time. <laughs> All the party sitting on the terrace were engaged in preparing some miserable fruit for jam. I make my bows and I'm about to beat a retreat, but the young ladies of various colors seize my hat with a squeal and insist on my staying. I sit Miserable down. fruit and women of various colors. Yeah. Um, I, I had marked the various colors the first time he mentioned it. And I'm like, all right, cool. It's a, um, it's a blended family. That's lovely. <laughs> I enjoy that. I don't know what the miserable fruit is. I don't. <laughs> My, Some miserable fruit. Well, probably miserable because it is being mashed into a jam. Not, not miserable because it's a bad fruit. Miserable because. Ugh. Or a fruit that suffers. Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's keep reading. Maybe we'll find out who these women of various colors are. They give me a plate of fruit and a hairpin. I begin taking the seeds out. Of course. Oh, could be cherries. Could be cherries. We like our cherries. The young ladies of various colors talk about men. They say that so-and-so is nice-looking, that so-and-so is handsome but not nice, that somebody else is nice but ugly, and that a fourth would not be bad-looking if his nose were not like a thimble, and so on. And you, Monsieur Nicholas, says Varenka's mama, turning to me, are not handsome, but you are attractive. There is something about your face. In men, though, it's not beauty, but intelligence that matters, she adds, sighing. 
The young ladies sigh too and drop their eyes. They agree that the great thing in men is not beauty but intelligence. I steal a glance sideways at a looking glass to ascertain whether I really am attractive. I see a shaggy head, a bushy beard, mustaches, eyebrows, hair on my cheeks, hair up to my eyes, a perfect thicket with a solid nose sticking out of it like a watchtower. Attractive. <laughs> but it's by the qualities of your soul, after all, that you will make your way, Nicholas, sighs Nadenka's mama, as though affirming some secret and original idea of her own. And Nadenka is sympathetically distressed on my account, but the conviction that a man passionately in love with her is sitting opposite is obviously a source of the greatest enjoyment to her. When they have done with men, the young ladies begin talking about love. After a long conversation about love, one of the young ladies gets up and goes away. Those that remain begin to pick her to pieces. Everyone agrees that she is stupid, unbearable, ugly, and that one of her shoulder blades sticks out in a shocking way. Meow. Yeah. Meow. <laughs> this is very um, mean girlsy. But at last, thank goodness, I see our maid. My mamma has sent her to call me in to dinner. Now I can make my escape from this uncongenial company and go back to my work. I get up and take my bows. Varenka's mamma, Varenka herself, and the variegated young ladies surround me and declare that I cannot possibly go because I promised yesterday to dine with them and go to the woods to look for mushrooms. So this is not his first visit. No, 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 no. Clearly, he ends up here with some regularity, and they know who mm -hmm. he is. I bow and sit down again. My soul is boiling with rage, and I feel that in another moment, I may not be able to answer for myself that there may be an explosion, but gentlemanly feeling and the fear of committing a breach of good manners compels me to obey the ladies, and I obey them. This is exactly how I feel in every social situation, period. Hmm. End of thought. Every social situation involving more than four people. Yeah. Or more than one person that I don't know. Or any person that I don't like. My precious son, dear listeners, <laughs> doesn't actually like people very much. I think characters are great. I think people are annoying. Yeah. They're not annoying. That's not fair. It's not that people are annoying. It's that they're terrifying. You're an introvert. I have no social skills. We sit down to dinner. The wounded officer, whose wound in the temple has affected the muscles of the left cheek, eats as though he had a bit in his mouth. I roll up little balls of bread, think about the dog license, and knowing the ungovernable violence of my temper, try to avoid speaking. Nadenka looks at me sympathetically. Soup, tongue and peas, roast fowl, and compote. I have no appetite, but eat from politeness. 
That is very unlike me. I always have appetite. Oh, I, I thought that was part of the script. No, yes. no. I'm just reading it so naturally that when I transition to my own voice, you can't tell the difference. No, no. <laughs> uh, after dinner, while I am standing alone on the terrace smoking, Nadenka's mama comes up to me, presses my hand and says breathlessly, Don't despair, Nicholas. She has such a heart. Such a heart. We go towards the wood to gather mushrooms. Varenka hangs on my arm and clings to my side. My sufferings are indescribable, but I bear them in patience. We enter the wood. Listen, Monsieur Nicholas, says Nadenka, sighing. Why are you so melancholy? And why are you so silent? After all, I've gone into the woods with you. <laughs> And apparently I'm speaking in French because I'm calling you Monsieur, mm. which is strange for an English translation of a Russian short story. Extraordinary girl she is, really. But what can I talk to her about? What have we in common? Oh, do say something, she begs me. Tell her about the dog licenses. Come on. I begin trying to think of something popular, something within the range of her understanding. After a moment's thought, I say, The cutting down of forests has been greatly detrimental to the prosperity of Russia. Once again, this is just me in conversation. Yes. <laughs> Ken, we're having such a good time. Why are you being so quiet? Come on, engage in the conversation. Global warming is going to kill us all in the next 15 years. Life of the party. <laughs> Never mind. You can go back to being quiet. <laughs> the cutting down of the forests has been greatly detrimental to the prosperity of Russia. Nicholas, sighs Nadenka. Her nose begins to turn red. Nicholas, I see you are trying to avoid being open with me. You seem to wish to punish me by your silence. Your feeling is not returned. And you wish to suffer in silence, in solitude. It is too awful, Nicholas. She cries, impulsively seizing my hand, and I see her nose beginning to swell. What would you say if the girl you love were to offer you her eternal friendship? I mutter something incoherent, for I really can't think what to say to her. In the first place, I'm not in love with any girl at all. In the second, what could I possibly want her eternal friendship for? And thirdly, I have a violent temper. Mashenka or Varenka hides her face in her hands and murmurs as though to herself, He will not speak. It is clear that he will have me make a sacrifice. I cannot love him if my heart is still another's, but I will think of it. Very good, I will think of it. I will prove the strength of my soul, and perhaps at the cost of my own happiness, I will save this man from suffering. <laughs> I can make nothing out of all this. It seems some special sort of puzzle. We go further into the wood and begin picking mushrooms. We are perfectly silent the whole time. Nadenka's face shows signs of inward struggle. I hear the bark of dogs. It reminds me of my dissertation and I sigh heavily. 
Between the trees, I catch sight of the wounded officer limping painfully along. The poor fellow's right leg is lame from his wound, and his left arm has one of the variegated young ladies. His face expresses resignation to destiny. These guys are shockingly disinterested in even the temporary company of young women. Like, it's weird. I think so. Um, although I think Mama is looking at him as husband material for sure. his daughter. Yeah. Or her daughter. Mm-hmm. And this is not his first visit, so he's he's had time to kind of go, look, I'm going to let you down easy here. Yeah, well, this, this feels a little bit like methinks the lady does protest too much. Yeah. Yeah. We go back to the house to drink tea, after which we play croquet and listen to one of the variegated young ladies sing a song. No, no, thou lovest not. No, no. At the word no, she twists her mouth till it almost touches one ear. Charmant, charmant, wail the other young ladies. The evening comes on. The detestable moon creeps up behind the bushes. The detestable moon. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's just, like, moody. Well, he's been researching dog licenses for years. He, he... He seems intentionally melancholic. Which, don't get me wrong, I understand. I've done that. I was 15. (laughs) (laughs) There are the years you wore black, yes. I sure as hell wasn't working on a dissertation. And if a girl wanted to pay attention to me, I wasn't going to try to chase her away. I think my melancholy did a pretty good job of that. He, he has to have rede- redeeming qualities. Let's find out what they are. Well, apparently he's really smart, but not very attractive. Yeah, kind of furry. Kind of furry. Yes. The detestable moon creeps up behind the bushes. There is perfect stillness in the air and an unpleasant smell of freshly cut hay. I take up my hat and try to get away. I have something I must say to you, Mashenka whispers to me significantly. Don't go away. (laughs) She's decided to let him court her. I have a foreboding of evil, Mm. but politeness obliges me to remain. Mashenka takes my arm and leads me away to a garden walk. By this time, her whole figure expresses conflict. She is pale and gasping for breath and she seems absolutely set on pulling my right arm out of the socket. Oh, my. What can be the matter with her? She's pale and gasping for breath. having an aneurysm? (laughs) I have a secret. You're a doctor, right? (laughs) Do you know CPR? (laughs) Has it been invented yet? You want to invent CPR? (laughs) You can put your mouth on mine and put your hands on my chest. I think that was the invention of CPR. I think so. No, no, I'm not feeling her up. I'm saving her life, I swear. It's the Heimlich maneuver, too. Um, what can be the matter with her? Listen, she mutters. No, I cannot. No. She tries to say something, but hesitates. 
Now I see from her face that she has come to some decision. With gleaming eyes and swollen nose, she snatches my hand and says hurriedly, Nicholas, I'm yours. Love you I cannot, but I promise to be true to you. Then she squeezes herself to my breast and at once springs away. Someone is coming, she whispers. Farewell. Tomorrow at 11 o'clock I will be in the arbor. Farewell. (laughs) And she vanishes. Completely at a loss for an explanation of her conduct and suffering from a painful palpitation of my heart, I make my way home. There, the past and future of the dog license is awaiting me, but I am quite unable to work. I am furious. I may say my anger is terrible. Damn it all! I allow no one to treat me like a boy. I am a man of violent temper, and it is not safe to trifle with me. I think he should put that in his diary. I am a big boy! (laughs) Dear diary! (laughs) Dear diary, today a girl was mean to me. Well, no, she wasn't. She said I could love her, but she wouldn't love me back. Except she did say she was going to be true to me. But she called me ugly. But she called me smart. I'm really confused. I'm a big boy. Good night. I'm really, 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 really really angry. (laughs) I like dogs. When the maid comes in to call me to supper, I shout to her, Go out of the room! Such hastiness augurs nothing good. Next morning, typical holiday weather, temperature below freezing, a cutting wind, rain, mud, and the smell of naphthalene. What is naphthalene? Naphthalene. A white crystalline compound made from coal tar or petroleum and used to make dyes, moth repellents, explosives, and solvents. Naphthalene, that's where I've heard it before. Mothballs have naphthalene in them. And naphthalene is also apparently um, poisonous. And that ends up being an important, uh, uh, like, trigger clue thing in an episode of Psych. Yes, because it can cause nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramps, diarrhea... Neurologic symptoms such as confusion, excitement, and convulsions, renal problems. Yeah, a whole lot of other things. Not good for humans. Nope. Anyway. Um, so, it's cold and windy and gross. And the smell of naphthalene because my mama has taken all her wraps out of her trunk. We would have known it with mothballs, yeah. A devilish morning. It is the 7th of August, 1887, the date of the solar eclipse. I may here remark that at the time of an eclipse, every one of us may, without special astronomical knowledge, be of the greatest service. Thus, for example, any one of us can, one, take the measure of the diameters of the sun and the moon, two, sketch the corona of the sun, three, take the temperature, four, take observations of plants and animals during the eclipse, five, note down his own impressions, and so on. It is a matter of such exceptional importance that I lay aside the past and future of the dog license and make up my mind to observe the eclipse. 
We all get up very early, and I divide the work as follows. I am to measure the diameter of the sun and moon, the wounded officer is to sketch the corona, and the other observations are undertaken by Mashenka and the variegated young ladies. We all meet together and wait. What is the cause of the eclipse? asks Mashenka. I reply, a solar eclipse occurs when the moon, moving in the plane of the elliptical, crosses the line joining the centers of the sun and the earth. And what does the elliptic mean? I explain. Mashenka listens attentively. Can one see through the smoke glass the line joining the centers of the sun and the earth? She inquires. I reply that this is only an imaginary line drawn theoretically. If it is only an imaginary line, how can the moon cross it? Varenka says, wondering. <laughs> I make no reply. I feel my spleen rising at this naive question. It's all nonsense, says Mashenka's mama. Impossible to tell what's going to happen. You've never been in the sky, so what can you know of what is to happen with the sun and moon? It's all fancy. At that moment, a black patch begins to move over the sun. General confusion follows. The sheep and horses and cows run bellowing about the fields with their tails in the air. The dogs howl. The bugs, thinking night has come, creep out of the cracks in the walls and bite the people who are still in bed. The deacon who was engaged in bringing some cucumbers from the market garden, jumped out of his cart and hid under the bridge while his horse walked off into somebody else's yard where the pigs ate up all the cucumbers. The excise officer, who had not slept at home that night but at a lady friend's, dashed out with naughty, nothing naughty. on but his naughty, nightshirt. Naughty, naughty. <laughs> dashed out with nothing on but his nightshirt and running into the crowd shouted fanatically save yourself if you can <laughs> numbers of the lady visitors even the young and pretty ones run out of their villas without even putting their slippers on scenes occur which i hesitate to describe Good, because there's a lot of words here. <laughs> yeah, but now I want to know what is like, oh, no, I can't describe that. Mm. What do people do at the eclipse that you couldn't describe? Dear listener, if you didn't know it was coming and all of a sudden the, the sun just went dark, what would you do? How come all these people are still in bed? I mean, he woke up kind of early. Uh, I sometimes sleep until noon. Maybe they're all actors and prostitutes. Could be, could be. Except for the excise officer who was sleeping with either an actor or a prostitute. <laughs> Possibly both. Save yourself if you can! Numbers of the lady visitors, even young and pretty ones, run out of their villas without even putting their slippers on. Scenes occur, which I hesitate to describe. Oh, dreadful, shriek the variegated young ladies. It's really too awful. 
Madame, watch, I cry. Time is precious. And I hasten to measure the diameters. I remember the corona and look towards the wounded officer. He stands doing nothing. <laughs> What's the matter? I shout. How about the corona? He shrugs his shoulders and looks helplessly towards his arms. The poor fellow has variegated young ladies on both sides of him, clinging to him in terror and preventing him from working. I seize a pencil and note down the time to a second. That is of great importance. I note down the geographical position of the point of observation. That, too, is of importance. I am just about to measure the diameter when Mashenka seizes my hand and says, Do not forget, today, 11 o'clock. <laughs> I withdraw my hand, feeling every second precious, try to continue my observations, but Varenka clutches my arm and clings to me. Pencil, pieces of glass, drawings, all are scattered on the grass. Hang it. It's high time the girl realized that I am a man of violent temper. And when I am roused, my fury knows no bounds. I cannot answer for myself. I try to continue, but the eclipse is over. Look at me, she whispers tenderly. Oh, that is the last straw. Trying a man's patience like that can have a fatal ending. I am not to blame if something terrible happens. I allow no one to make a laughing stock of me, and God knows when I am furious, I advise nobody to come near me. Damn it all. There's nothing I might not do. One of the young ladies, probably noticing from my face what a rage I am in, and anxious to propitiate me, says, I did exactly what you told me, Nikolai Andrich. I watched the animals. I saw the gray dog chasing the cat just before the eclipse and wagging his tail for a long while afterwards. So nothing came of the eclipse after all. I go home. Thanks to Dear the diary. <laughs> Today was stupid. <laughs> I go home. Thanks to the rain, I work indoors instead of on the balcony. The wounded officer has risked it and has again got as far as I was born in when I see one of the variegated young ladies pounce down on him and bear him off for her villa. She pounced down on him and yep. bore him off. Oh, my. He's going to have a lovely afternoon. Yes. Whether he likes it or not. I cannot work, for I am still in a fury and suffering from palpitation of the heart. I do not go to the arbor. It is impolite not to, but after all, I can't be expected to go in the rain. At twelve o'clock, I receive a letter from Mashenka, a letter full of reproaches and entreaties to go to the arbor, addressing me as thou. At one o'clock, I get a second letter, and at two, a third. <laughs> I must go. She is... Nothing, if nothing, if not relentless. The postal service was way more efficient back then, wasn't it? Uh, you have one in a villa has servants who deliver things for you, I believe. Oh, that's probably true. I must go, but before going, I must consider what I am to say to her. I will behave 
like a gentleman. To begin with, I will tell her that she is mistaken in supposing that I am in love with her. That's a thing one does not say to a lady as a rule, though. To tell a lady that one's not in love with her is almost as rude as to tell an author he can't write. <clears throat> and besides, he should have brought that up several days ago. Or weeks, weeks ago, ago by the Or months of it. ago. The best thing will be to explain my views of marriage. I put on my winter overcoat, take an umbrella, and walk to the arbor. Knowing the hastiness of my temper, I am afraid I may be led into speaking too strongly. I will restrain myself. I find Nadenka still waiting for me. She is pale and in tears. On seeing me, she utters a cry of joy, flings herself on my neck, and says, At last! You are trying my patience. Listen, I have not slept all night. I have been thinking and thinking. I believe that when I come to know you better, I shall learn to love you. Oh, good. I am so relieved. <laughs> I sit down and begin to unfold my views on marriage. To begin with, to clear the ground of digressions and to be as brief as possible, I open with a short historical survey. I speak of marriage in ancient Egypt and India. Then I pass to more recent times. A few ideas... The important thing is he's thinking of marriage. She must be so pleased. <laughs> a few ideas from Schopenhauer. Mashenka listens attentively, but all of a sudden... Through some strange incoherence of ideas, thinks fit to interrupt me. Good on her. Nicholas, kiss me, she says. I am embarrassed and don't know what to say to her. She repeats her request. There seems no avoiding it. I get up and bend over her long face, feeling as I do so, just as I did in my childhood when I was lifted up to kiss my grandmother in her coffin. Ah! That's what you want to hear. Ish, ish, ish. Not content with the kiss, Mashenka leaps up and impulsively embraces me. At that instant, Mashenka's mama appears in the doorway of the arbor. She makes a face as though in alarm and saying shh, shh to someone with her, vanishes like Mephistopheles through the trap door. <laughs> Confused and enraged, I return to our villa. At home, I find Varenka's mama embracing my mama with tears in her eyes, and my mama weeps and says, I always hoped for it. And then, if you please, Nadenka's mama comes up to me, embraces me, and says, May God bless you. Mind you love her well. Remember the sacrifice she is making for your sake. Dear Diary, a terrible thing has happened to me today. <laughs> and here I am at my wedding. <laughs> At the moment I write these last words, my best man is at my side, urging me to make haste. These people have no idea of my character. I have a violent temper. I cannot always answer for myself, hang it all. God knows what will come of it. To lead a violent, desperate man to the altar is as unwise as to thrust one's hand into the cage of a ferocious tiger. We shall see. We shall see. One final entry. And so, I am married. 
Everybody congratulates me, and Varenka keeps clinging to me and saying, Now you are mine, mine. Do you understand that? Tell me that you love me. And her nose <laughs> swells as she says it. I learn from my best man that the wounded officer has very cleverly escaped the snares of Hymen. He showed the variegated young lady a medical certificate that owing to the wound in his temple, he was at times mentally deranged and incapable of contracting a valid marriage. An inspiration. <laughs> too little, too late. I might have got a certificate too. An uncle of mine drank himself to death. Another uncle was extremely absent-minded. On one occasion, he put a lady's muff on his head in mistake of his own hat. An aunt of mine played a great deal on the piano and used to put out her tongue at gentlemen she did not like. Put out her tongue at gentlemen and she didn't like. My ungovernable temper is a very suspicious symptom. But why do these great ideas always come too late? Why? Oh, yay. The end. Well, I don't think he really had such a terrible temper, and I wonder if that dissertation ever gets written. I don't know. It seemed like he put off writing that dissertation for any old thing. It was kind of a boring dissertation, yeah. let's face it. Yeah. And he, I mean... It was the girls, and then it was the eclipse, and frankly, it sounds like he hadn't made a whole lot of headway on it before Mashenka, Narenka, Varenka showed up anyway. And all of the variegated girls. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm thinking it wasn't that important to him. No. And I'm thinking he's probably lucky somebody snared him because he wasn't going to go out and find anyone. Yeah. Yeah, once again, I'm reminded of 15-year-old Ken, who was just moody and thought he was way angrier and cooler than he actually was. Well, but luckily for you, 15-year-old Ken was being cast in roles in theater and, and forced to socialize with other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was still in school, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, and I had my books to read. And that was nice. And music. And music. And fortunately, you, you, you got to keep growing and changing and not being 15 anymore. Yeah. We all grow out of that eventually. Um, so what did you think? Did you enjoy that one? Or were you asking me and not the listener? Well, I, I was asking you, but you are the listeners. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, I, uh, I'm i a little bit sorry that you didn't have to um, use a Russian accent. Well, no, they were all speaking French, apparently. It kept being mama and monsieur and mesdames. I should have used a French accent, if anything. But I do that enough with Poirot. Um, I, I actually very much enjoyed it. I, as I was reading it, I found myself going, yeah, I can see the theatrical version of this. Mm -hmm. And definitely comedy. Oh yeah. 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 It's this, um, moody bloviating fool who doesn't realize how good his life is. Yes. And you are correct. The gentleman doth protest too much. Yeah. Me thinks. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, but what did you think, listener? Did you enjoy that one? Uh, as we discovered earlier in this episode, if you shoot me an email, I'll actually read it. <laughs> um, and uh, if it's interesting, I'll actually read it on the podcast. Um, or if it sounds like something you want read, I'll read it on the podcast. If you just say, yes, I liked it, that might not make it. But And if nestled with the books on your shelf is some creepy kind of um, doll or creepy musical instrument or, or, or creepy talisman, include that in the email, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Along Please. with the explanation of your relationship with said creepy item. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's your your twofold mission this week is to send a message to 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or to any of the social medias. Uh, we've got Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. Just look for Campfire Classics and let us know what you thought of this Anton Chekhov short story about an ill-tempered man and what horrifying haunted goodies you have on your shelf. And please include uh, with the email or the message um, this week's uh, secret passcode, which is the fabulousness of Freddy. The fabulousness of Freddy. Yeah. I have no new business. Anything to share before we uh, hang up? I don't think so. I think. All right. This has been Campfire Classics. Where we try, although not always very hard, to read those books that look really good on your shelf. <laughs>